Today's passage is very short. It's only three verses long, Psalm 131, uh, but it packs quite a punch. I thought I knew what I was getting myself into when I picked the passage, uh, but I really had no idea. I thought that this was simply a psalm about the peace of God to us, and it, it is that, of course, but it's much more than that. God's word is a comfort to us, um, but don't ever forget that God's word is also a fire and a hammer. And it's often, God often has to use his word to break us down in order to prepare us for the last, lasting comfort that he provides. <clears throat> That's what we find here. So let's read it together from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Most of us here this morning are American. Most of us, for most of our lives, or maybe all of our lives, have sucked in the beliefs all around us about what it means to be an American. I think I, I may have heard, it may have been Tim uh, say recently, that culture is that stuff, those beliefs that you just suck in, that's all around you, that you don't even notice is there. So you're like a fish in water, right? You suck it in, you believe it, and then sometimes when people point it out to you, you sort of say, whoa, I didn't even realize that I thought that way. Well, that's what culture is about, and that's, that's what we take in when we think about who we are as Americans. We just, we, we suck in our culture all around us. Next week, of course, is 4th of July, and we'll be celebrating our independence from Britain. But along with that comes all the flag-waving and the self-congratulating that, that comes about, that comes with being an American. Uh, the 4th of July is a day to bask in the glory of having been born in the USA. All right, I hope you realize I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. So what is it that Americans believe? What defines us? Well, ever since the first few generations of our nation, we've thought of ourselves as qualitatively different than other nations. Um, we're exceptional. We're special. Uh, there's actually, I discovered that there's actually a, a type of foreign policy or maybe not foreign policy, but it's a, it's a term, American exceptionalism. This is what we think about ourselves. <clears throat> we believe that America is the place where the little guy has a chance to make it big. All, all it takes is hard work and determination, and you can go from rags to riches. America is the land of opportunity. It's home of the American dream. You've heard the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and it... it, it perfectly describes us. It, it signifies getting ahead in life and doing so all by yourself. You didn't, you're entirely self-sufficient and you, you made it yourself. Even our military tells you that you should be all that you can be. <clears throat> if you can dream it, you can achieve it, so says Zig Ziglar. <clears throat> high school and college students are told that their lives are filled with vast potential, and if they want to, they can change their world, as long as you give the college lots of your money. 
Do you want to stop AIDS in Africa? Come to our university and we'll show you how. Perhaps you want to become a president someday or maybe the CEO of a big corporation. We're told that our potential is limitless. Each and every one of us carries within ourselves this vast potential. We just have to reach out and grab it, grab a hold of the success that is coming to us. So how does that belief comport with these verses, with Psalm 131? How does our belief in our unlimited potential go along with, with, uh, with these verses? So, you know, our text says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Okay, well, you know, we can understand that. It's not good to be proud. You don't want to be proud. We, we want to be better than everyone, just not proud about it. Okay? So we, we kind of get that. We know that. But then what about the next two lines? It says, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, does that sound like a man trying to pursue the American dream? Does it sound like a man who's trying to change the world? Trying to end poverty? That he doesn't involve himself in great matters or in things too difficult for him? It doesn't. Nothing about it does. Um, and so this realization came to me slowly as I was preparing for this sermon because it was as if this idea of the American dream had to be pried out of my hands. I mean, I was trying to figure out, so, okay, so you've got these verses, and then you've got <clears throat> this idea of our potential that we're supposed to be all we can be, you know, excellence, strive for excellence. <clears throat> Instead... The, I, I, I slowly had this idea of the American dream evaporate. And more specifically, though, I gradually realized that this verse, these verses are directed right at me. They're directed at my proud thoughts of who I am and what I plan to accomplish with my life. Now, let me give you an example uh, um, from my time as a deacon here at uh, Clearnote Church. It was Church of the Good Shepherd when I was a deacon, so there. Um, I discovered during my time that there was a kind of man who would often come to the deacons for help. This kind of man was always busy, and he always had a plan. He needed $500, but if he could just get the $500, he had a plan for this, and a plan for this, and a plan for this. He had everything worked out, all set to go. What's interesting is that these, these type of men never came to the deacon saying, I'm at a complete loss. I don't know what to do. Just please help me and tell me what to do and I'll do it. They never, they never say that. They always have plans. They just need a little help and then all these grandiose plans. Well, when, once I saw, began to see that pattern in the men that would come to us for help, I began to see it within the men of our own church. And then I began to see it in myself. It's the type of a man who has big plans for this and that, but he's incapable of being faithful in the work that he has right in front of him. You know, at some point, you want to say to the guy, stop, just stop. I don't want to hear your plans anymore. I want you to stop and focus on the work that God has given you right now. 
I've realized that it's the proud man who is unable to do the work that's set right in front of him. It's the proud man who imagines glorious exploits in distant countries. It's the proud man who spends his time reading articles or watching YouTube videos instead of doing the work that's in front of him on his computer. It's the proud man who refuses to prepare for marriage because he's giving himself to conquering fairy tale lands on his Xbox or uh, can't, you know, World War, finishing World War II campaigns and Call of Duty. What's interesting about this man is that he's also filled with anxiety and fear. He labors under a bad conscience of not having done the work of the day. When the work day is over, he's filled with bitterness and anger because he didn't get what he thought he should have uh, done. It's the proud heart that's unfit for the work of the day which concerns itself with great matters too difficult for it. Now, I hope you're awake and listening to me, and, and I hope that you're actually thinking of objections to this. And the reason I say that is because, it's not typical you might hear a, a preacher say that, but I, I, I want you to be thinking of objections because this is so ingrained in who we are, this, this belief in our potential and, and this belief in, in that we should go, to the, you know, go for the gold, that for me to tell you otherwise should, should bother you. It should get under your skin. I mean, after all, isn't there such a thing as godly ambition? Isn't it part of being a Christian that we work hard and then we, we enjoy the fruit of, of, the, of our labor? Isn't it true that ambition and drive and stick-to-itiveness is precisely what has made America so great? I mean, we love stories of the underdog persevering in the face of overwhelming odds. Isn't that what great missionary stories are about? going to a country and transforming the whole culture. Whenever the NCAA tournament comes around, we love it when the number 16 seed beats the number one seed, right? It's amazing. We love it. It's awesome. What could possibly be wrong about aspiring to beat the big guy? You know, another example of this is I've seen on the wall many, many times Jeremiah 29.11. Right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You hear that? I have a future and a hope. That means I, I just need to reach out and grasp God's best for my life. So how do you, how do you meld Psalm 131, verse 1, with this idea of our, our vast potential? <laughs> Well, as I was thinking about this, I realized that this is a psalm of David. This is written by David, as in David and Goliath. You've heard of the story, right? I mean, think about it. This is David and Goliath, for thousands of years, has defined for Western culture what it means for the little guy to to win over the big guy. Right? I mean, even, you, can, you can go to the college dorm rooms at Indiana University and talk to sports fans who don't, have never read a single word of the Bible, and they'll know what you're talking about when you say David and Goliath. This, the ESPN sportscasters will say, you know, this is a David and Goliath story. Right? They'll know. And yet this same man says, 
O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. I do not involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So isn't the story of David and Goliath a perfect example of a man involving himself in great matters and things too difficult for him? David had guts. Is he not the definition of rugged American individualism or of the American dream? A no-name sheep herder becomes king. <clears throat> well, let's take a look at the David and Goliath story. You can follow along in your Bibles. It's found in 1 Samuel 17. We won't read it all, but I will summarize it for you. The Israelites are at war with the Philistines, right? So you've got the Israelites encamped on a hill over here. And you've got the, the Philistines encamped on a hill over here. And in between, there's a valley. And they're facing each other. And Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. He's a giant. He's a mighty man of, of war. And he comes out and he, he, he yells to them, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That goes on for 40 days and no Israelite has the courage to take Goliath on. David is not among the Israelites, the army of the Israelites at that time. Three of his older brothers are with the Israelite army. But David is the youngest, so he's back at home tending the sheep. One day, David's father tells him to gather up some food and take it to his brothers at the battlefront. Now, you should notice here what Scripture doesn't say. It would be very easy to imagine a young man, bitter and angry and resentful at having been left behind, with the sheep, while his older brothers got to go see, check out the action, and and got to be where the action was. You can imagine that, but that's not at all what we see here. David doesn't ask his father to go to the battlefront. He's not nagging his father for a chance to see the action. He's commanded to go. And you, you need to remember in the context that the prophet Samuel had anointed David in the previous chapter. So you might think that if anyone had a right to be part of the action, David certainly did. But he simply did what he was told to do. We read in verse 20 that David got up early in the morning, made sure to leave the flocks with the keeper. So he took care of his obligations, and then he departs to bring provisions to his brother. Now, of course, when he arrives at the battlefront, he sees Goliath and he hears Goliath's words. And you can see David's response in verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? It's clear that David is burning with righteous indignation. How could Goliath get away with taunting the armies of the living God? You'll notice again what he doesn't do. David could have demanded to see the king. He's a, by this time, he's already played music for the king, so he's been in the king's court. And you could imagine that he might have used his connections to, to have a, get a hearing. You know, another thing that he might have done, and something that an impetuous youth might have done, is uh, gone out and attacked Goliath right away on his own accord. He could have led a mutiny of sorts and and led men, called men to follow him and led them into battle. He, He had been anointed by Samuel after all. But David doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even mention the anointing he received by the hand of Samuel. 
Instead, he asks his question until Saul hears about him, and then Saul sends for him. The rest, as they say, is history. David kills Goliath, and the Israelite army wins a great victory over the Philistines. So, if you've ever thought that David and Goliath is the story of a rugged American individualism, of of making it big, then I'm here to tell you that it's not. Remember, God or man looks at the outward appearances while God looks at the heart. David is not grasping for power or fame or glory. You've heard of desperate housewives, right? He's not a desperate sheep herder. All right? David is not pining away with ang- frustration at, at un- being unable to fulfill his God-given gifts while he's caring for the flock. He's simply a man who has known God's faithfulness in the past, and so he's indignant when, he's, when he hears that God is mocked. The difference between David and us can be seen in verse 2. It says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. A hungry little baby is fussy and fidgety on his mother's lap. He desires food, and he starts crying if you don't feed him right now. Once the child is weaned, though, he is able, if you teach him, (laughs) to sit quietly on his mother's lap. This verse, like most of the Psalms, is speaking about our desires. And are we not like the fussy little baby? This verse perfectly describes the man or the woman who is constantly anxious and afraid. You've got a to-do list that's a mile long, and every night you're frustrated because you didn't get as much done as you hoped. You know, we eat our ice cream, and we're anxious that we'll get fat. We, we don't eat our ice cream, and we, we want it. We're annoyed that we don't have it. We focus on the work, on our work and our job, and then we have this niggling anxiety in the back of our mind that maybe this isn't the best job for me. I need a better job, and I'm not looking for a job. Perhaps we waste our time daydreaming about a job, and then when we come to our senses, we're fearful and anxious because we realize that we've not done the work that we've been paid to do. We're agitated and we're fussy. So how, how can we be free from this? How can we have a composed and quiet soul? What does it mean to have a soul that is weaned like a child, or that is like a weaned child? Well, I'll begin by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you let go and let God. This isn't flower power from the 60s. This isn't something that you can get by smoking marijuana, right? David didn't let go and let God. He was humble and faithful in his work. Faithfulness never comes easy. It's achieved day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year after year. If you're young and foolish, you may think it's easy, but speak to someone who's older and, and hopefully they'll disabuse you of the notion. And of course... Having a quiet and a composed soul has nothing to do with stoicism. It's not about putting our desires on the shelf and and beating our body until we make ourselves uh, disciplined, um, like many religions call you to do. So what does it mean? Brothers and sisters, we must begin by repenting of our anxious and fearful thoughts. And we must turn to God. 
God gave you all the money that you have. Why are you anxious as if he won't continue to give, what you, give you what you need in the future? Saul, King Saul, uh, the king before David, is a good foil for David. If you'll turn with me to, to 1 Samuel 13, just flip a couple pages in your Bible if you, if you were in 1 Samuel 17. And, and uh, we read uh, an example of, of this very thing with Saul, this anxiety and fear. Now, Saul is also, like David, well, Saul is leading the people while David is, is, is tending the sheep. He's fighting the Philistines, right? This is before David comes on the scene in a big way. And he's been told to wait at a certain place, and then the prophet Samuel would come and meet him there and, and offer sacrifice to God. Now, Samuel's not coming, he's not coming, and, and so Saul is anxious and afraid. And then we pick up in, in verse 9 here, it says, So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold... Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord w- uh, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people. Because you have not kept the, what the Lord commanded you. Brothers and sisters, this, this is us. This is me. This is you. We were fearful and anxious. We think that God will not provide. Saul thinks that Samuel's never going to come. And, and he's got so many good reasons, doesn't he? I mean, look at, look at the passage. He's got the people scattering away from him. He's got the armies, the foreign armies pressing in on him. And he doesn't see Samuel anywhere. I mean, doesn't he have good reason to be anxious? No, he doesn't. He can trust God. We are called to trust God. So, brothers and sisters, we must repent of our anxious and fearful thoughts. We must also repent of our laziness and our faithlessness. When we're lazy and faithless, we turn to bitterness and anger and depression when we're called into account. You know, when, when if you're at work and... Your boss shows up and you've been lazy all day. You're going to be frustrated at him, right? It's, it's this anger, this bitterness. When your wife calls you and you've been wasting time and she asks you when you're going to be home, you say, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to be home. I got a lot of work to do. Right? This anger, this bitterness comes out when we've been lazy and faith, faithless. It's just like, uh, and I'll turn now to uh, the New Testament. In Matthew 25, we have the story of, Jesus tells the story of the talents, the parable of the talents. You know the story. You can, you can turn to Matthew 25. It's, uh, um, uh, I'll just summarize it. The, um, uh, the, the master 
has three slaves. He gives five to the first, five talents to the first slave, two talents to the second slave, and one to the third. Right? And the first slave goes out, uh, and then the master departs. And the first slave goes out, makes money. Second slave goes out, makes money. The third slave just hides the talent. Right? So the master comes back. The first slave has ten talents, and the master says, good job, very well done. The second slave has four talents instead of two, and the master says, good job, very well done. And then, um, and then we pick up on verse 24 here, Matthew 25. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours." Very happy, you know, giving his his uh, master what he was what what is his. But his master answered and said to him, "You wicked and lazy slave! You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from The one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing its teeth. Now, in the past, I've really struggled with this passage. I've always thought, man, isn't that pretty harsh? I mean, he gave him back his talent. It's not like the slave stole from the master. Why is the master coming down on him so hard? Well, to understand this parable, you have to see the bitterness and the anger of the servant directed at his master. You know, just like this servant, we labor under the weight of guilt over commandments not obeyed. We're bitter and we're angry because we've, we've been given work to do and we haven't done it. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent and believe the scriptures, and obey. Now, let me bring it back around to where we started, the American dream. We must repent of this idea of our own excellence and our own foolish, proud, haughty American dream. Are you so busy pursuing excellence and looking for something else to give you the work, to, to give, to your, give yourself to, that you're not willing to do the work of being a wife and a mother, for instance. Or if you're single, are you pining away, neglecting to be faithful at the work that God has given you, given you right now? We need to trust that the work that God has given us right now is preparing us for, for whatever it is He has for us in the future. Husbands, are you so busy chasing dragons that you're content for your family to, to live on the poverty line indefinitely. <laughs> or or uh, young men, if you're not married, are you busy playing Xbox on your, uh, and taking your, your escapades rather than preparing to, have, to be a father and a husband? We should kill this idea of the American dream that we've sucked in from our culture. Everything that we have has been given to us from God. And we are to be faithful in the little things. And so we need to be faithful in in the place that God has put us. If you're faithful, and 
I want to say this. If you're faithful where God has put you, there will be dragons to slay. Tim just mentioned the, uh, the example of Josh writing an email. I mean, it's such a small thing. It's just a little thing. It's just where he works, right? It's just the, some office at IU. It's a big place. Such a small email. <clears throat> he may lose his job. He doesn't know that, but he may. Or he may not get hired back next year. Who knows? Who knows? Trust me. If you give yourself to, the, to, to faithfulness where you are, if you are willing to express God's disapproval of, of a co-worker's perversity, if you come, uh, if you are willing to call a family member or a co-worker to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you will have dragons to slay. If you, uh, it, they will come. If you give yourself to the work of training up your children, they will come. There will be work to do, and it will be glorious, but you must have the eyes of faith to see it. The words that were written down thousands of years ago by David are for us. So, Clear Note Church in Bloomington, Indiana, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Brothers and sisters, turn away from your anxious, fearful, and proud thoughts. Give yourself to the work that God has given you. If you hope in the Lord, you will have a quiet and a composed spirit when Goliath comes along, because he will. But once he's been slain, it will be evident to all that it was God's work in you and not some proud achievement of your own. Let's pray. Father God, we are very proud and self-congratulatory of the smallest things that we do. And yet, Father, you have called us to very simple things, to to walk humbly before you, to obey, to lead our, our children, to lead our wife, to do our work faithfully, to discipline our children, to speak uh, truthfully in our workplace. Father, these are so simple and so straightforward, and yet, Father, we, we refuse to do them. Please forgive us. Give us hearts that, that will obey. In that, uh, give us obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.